0: On July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong historically said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And with those words, he became the first human being to ever set foot on the surface of the moon. It was a truly historic moment. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin immediately became national heroes and worldwide celebrities. Everyone knew these men. And yet... Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong did not make it to the moon by themselves. They didn't construct the rockets. They didn't invent the space suits. They didn't man space control. There was hundreds, thousands of others. What about people like Robert Gilruth and Werner Braun Braun or George Lowe, Kurt Debus, Joe Shea or Gene Kranz? Ever heard of them? Well, Without them, there would not be the planting of the U.S. flag on the surface of the moon. The decade leading up to July 20, 1969, saw ceaseless activity from the space center. Just to make that lunar mission possible, the Apollo program employed over 400,000 individuals to achieve that feat. According to one source, landing humans on the moon by the end of 1969 required the most sudden burst of technological creativity and the largest commitment of resources ever made by a nation in peacetime. Every person in the space program, from the smallest, uh, from the smallest seamstress making those spacesuits to the astronauts themselves, Everyone was involved in this mission. In an interview from 2001, Neil Armstrong reflected on the efforts of NASA to get man to the moon. He says this, I can only attribute that to the fact that every guy in the project, every guy at the bench building something, every assembler, every inspector, every guy that's setting up the tests, cranking the torque wrenches, that's the only reason we could have pulled this whole thing off. There's a famous story, perhaps apocryphal, but... Nevertheless, it's a famous story of John F. Kennedy touring the NASA Space Center. And during his tour, he passed a man in the hallway, wearing a NASA uniform, carrying a broom. And he asked the man, he said, what what do you do for NASA? The janitor responded, sir, I'm putting a man on the moon, Mr. President. You see, from the, the smallest to the greatest, there was one objective, one mission and it took hundreds of thousands of people to accomplish it. Well, we have a mission far greater than the Apollo program. Our mission is not to get men to the moon, it's to get men to heaven. It's the gospel mission, to share and proclaim the news of Jesus Christ in this lost and dying world. And it takes every one of us. It's not the, the objective or the mission of a sole individual or a few it is the mission of the entire church, from the least to the greatest. Everyone has a job to do. It's interesting to me that as you read the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, for all of his greatness and for his charisma and his go-get-em attitude, you almost never find Paul alone. He's constantly talking about those partners he had in ministry, those faithful fellow workers people like Silas and Barnabas who traveled with him, like the, uh, the physician Luke who often appears along with Paul, like Timothy and many others who enter into the biblical narrative. Paul didn't think of gospel ministry as his task, but as the task of the whole church. And it's true today. It's not just a pastor. It's not just a missionary. It is the work of all of us, To make this gospel message known. Now that doesn't mean that we all do the same thing. No more than than a rocket technician. And a lunar module designer. Did the same thing for the NASA program. Yet. Each of us in our own way. Are contributing to the mission of the church. We are fellow workers. Fellow laborers in the cause of Christ. What does that mean for us then? As individuals. If we're to be. People who are engaged in this mission, well, what what kind of people ought we to be? Well, let me state it like this, and this is the thrust of our, our, our message this morning. Faithful fellow workers in the gospel must actively resemble Christ. Faithful fellow workers in the gospel must actively resemble Christ. The more we are like Christ, the more we are equipped and prepared as fellow laborers in this cause. In other words, the more we have the mind of Christ, the better able we are to serve together in the fellowship of the gospel. Now, it's been a little while since we've been in the book of Philippians, so it might be helpful for us to review a little bit here of where we've been. The letter to the Philippians is essentially a thank you letter from the Apostle Paul. This church has supported him, has partnered with him in this mission of the gospel. And so he writes as sort of a thank you letter. But of course, with Paul... He can never just write a thank you letter. For us, it would be four lines and a signature and we're done. But Paul has so much more to share with this church. And he does in this book. And as you look about Philippians, there's a lot of different themes that weave their way through. Themes like humility and joy and unity, which are all prominent here. But I think if if you tie it all together... The book of Philippians is really about striving together for the gospel. He writes to thank them for striving together, for partnering with him in the gospel. Yes, that produces joy. Yes, that should bring out humility. Yes, we need unity in order to do that. But at the heart, it's about striving together for the gospel. And I think that word together is worth highlighting. Because as partners, it means that we will be serving together in this cause. Well, Paul wanted the Philippians to know that the gospel which they had so invested in and had partnered with him in was still going forward even though he was in chains. Go back to chapter 1 of Philippians. He tells them in verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, you've partnered with me in this gospel mission, and now you're hearing that I'm in prison. That hasn't chained the word of God, though. It continues to push forward. It continues to bear fruit. So as he tells them of his condition, he wants to encourage them, and also to encourage them to embrace the mind of Christ. That's where we get to chapter 2. He says in verses Uh, three and four of chapter two. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's the attitude. If they're going to be partners, fellow laborers in this cause, then they need to have a humble attitude. What does that look like? How do we do that? Well, it's by actively resembling Christ. Christ. And that's where we get what's sometimes called the Carmen Christi or the Christ hymn of verses 5 to 11. This is the theological center of the book of Philippians. And in it we read that Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, but instead humbled himself, emptied himself, and became a servant. And, And even lowered himself to the point of death on a cross. And the Lord has exalted this Jesus high above all powers. This is the theological center of the message. And the more we are like Jesus, the more we have this mind in us, the better equipped we are to be faithful fellow workers. Paul, however, in these verses before us this morning, 19 to 30, gives two practical examples. Well, what does it look like to be a fellow worker who resembles Christ? Christ. Well, he gives us two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who model for us what it looks like. And frankly, I'm, I'm happy for this. I'm very grateful that this is here in the scriptures. Because if Jesus was our example, we might feel a little bit like, well, Jesus can do it, but I'm not Jesus. Here, however, Paul gives us two imperfect men who effectively and actively followed Christ and show us what it's like even for us to live this example. Now, as we get into verses 19 to 30, you're going to notice there's a lot of practical matters that find their way into this. Paul is kind of giving us a travelogue, if you will, I'm, going to, I'm hoping to send Timothy to you. I'm hoping to send Epaphras to you and bring back message of, of you to me. And I'm going to do this so it will ease my mind. And it's a little bit odd that there's this commendation of Timothy and Epaphroditus here. Why? Well, if you read all of the New Testament and Paul's letters, typically, typically the commendations come at the end of the letter. You get to the end and then he'll mention, oh yeah, uh, greet Timothy and greet these people for me and I commend this person to you. But here he sticks it right in the middle of the letter, which has led some people to think he was closing the letter and then he thought of more things to say. But I think there's a reason for this. The commendations come in the middle of the book because they illustrate the point he's trying to make, that his fellow faithful 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 fellow workers in the mission of the gospel, we need to resemble Christ just like these two men do. So we're going to look at their examples this morning. Looking first at this man, Timothy, in verses 19 to 25. Timothy, who models for us what it means to put others first. Timothy was a man who was putting others first. Follow along in your copy of the, the word, I'm going to read all the way from verses 19 all the way down to 25. The Bible says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus." But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. So Timothy is the first example given to us here. Now, Timothy is a fairly familiar name if you've worked your way through the New Testament at all. In fact, there are two books in the New Testament which bear his name. Timothy was a frequent companion of the Apostle Paul. As a younger man, he was in some ways mentored by Paul. And rather than giving a biographical sketch this morning and telling you all the details about Timothy's life, I just want to focus on what Paul spells out here in this text. What makes Timothy such a, such a faithful fellow laborer? What are the qualities that make this man a a model worthy of imitation. Well, we see them here laid out in verses 19 to 24. He begins in verse 19 by saying, I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly. And you get the feeling from this passage, there's this deep confidence that Paul has in Timothy. He views him as a true fellow worker in the gospel. And he typifies this, quality of Christ, of putting others first. Just as Jesus had not considered equality with God something to be grasped, instead he put the needs of others first. And Timothy does the same thing, to a lesser degree, yes, but the same attitude is in him. So Paul says, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. Why? Well, so that he may be an encouragement to you, that he might basically act as Paul's mediator. He's sending Timothy because Timothy has the same mindset that Paul has. That is the mindset of Christ. Well, this hope that he has in verse 19, or trust, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, is a recognition on Paul's part. Paul has had his plans change enough times to know that he can't just presume upon things. He says, I trust I'm going to send Timothy to you shortly. That's my plan. God may change that. Things may happen. But right now, I want to send him to you to encourage you. Well, what kind of person is Timothy? Paul describes him in four ways. He describes him first as a person who had a kindred heart for ministry. A kindred heart for ministry. Look at verse 20, if you will. For I have no one like-minded, he says. Paul looks around, he says... Who can I send to the Philippian church? Who is it that has just a genuine burden, a heart for ministry? Somebody whom I can send that I know I can trust and who's going to do the same things I would do there. He says, I have no one but Timothy. That doesn't mean that there's no one else in the world that Paul trusts. But rather, when he looks around, he says, Timothy, he's a guy that... He and I share the same mindset. In fact, he uses this term like-minded here. Uh, It's an interesting word. It has the idea of having the same soul. Having the same soul. It's a deep likeness with someone else. That you share a a worldview in common, a way of viewing things in common. Maybe you have this with somebody else, maybe a spouse, maybe someone else, that you, you guys just see things the same way you would trust this person implicitly because we have the same interests in mind. Well, that was Timothy and Paul, someone who had this kindred heart for ministry. Timothy, because of his time spent with Paul, had picked up Paul's burdens, his mindset, his values, his priorities. Jesus said, A disciple, when he is full grown, will resemble his master, Matthew 10, 24. Well, that was the case with Timothy. Timothy had begun to look like Paul, having been mentored by him. They shared much in common, their heart for ministry. And this really is what makes a person an effective partner in the gospel, a fellow worker, is by having this heart knit together in a common desire for ministry and serving together but that's not all paul timothy was not a clone of paul they had differences i'm sure but in what ways are they similar he spells it out verse 20 for i have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your estate who genuinely is concerned for you and that's what marks him not only does he have a kindred heart for ministry he has a genuine concern for others A genuine concern for others. In other words, he puts others first. He's not caring and and only concerned with himself. Instead, he puts the needs of others first. Just like Christ. You see, not only had Timothy come to resemble Paul, he had also come to resemble his master, the Lord Jesus. He had a deep relationship with Christ which was now bearing fruit in his life. And that's why Paul could look at him and say, here's somebody I trust, who has a genuine concern for others. And I like that Paul here adds, who will sincerely care for your affairs. Sincerely, genuinely. There's a lot of people who would show concern, and they might even fake it fairly well, but they're not genuine. There are even people who would minister and serve in a church with insincere or disingenuous way that was not Timothy he truly cared about the Philippians he cared like Paul cared about the Philippians see he had a genuine concern Timothy was the real deal Paul is basically saying I trust Timothy completely because he cares for you like I care for you not only did he have genuine concern for others he also had selfless devotion to the Lord to the next verse, verse 22, uh, 21, excuse me. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. So in contrast here, there are others out there who are not sincere, who don't really have this attitude. That's why he can say, I only have Timothy. Timothy's the only one I got. Because not a lot of people share his genuine concern for the Philippians. Or all the churches. See, Timothy had a selfless devotion to the Lord. Isn't this interesting? It is to me, at least. 21, he says, all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. You almost expect him to say, not the things which are yours, or the Philippians, or Paul's, even. Instead, he says, which are Christ Jesus. See, he was there not to serve necessarily the Philippians, although... He was that. He was there to serve the Lord. And in serving the Lord, he would serve the Philippians. In serving the Lord, he would serve the Ephesians or or any of the churches that came up with any need. Timothy was not a person who sought his own. He wasn't there for his own glory or for his own advancement. He was there to serve the things of Christ. Here's the question, and there's one more of these to go, but I want to ask it here. Would you make a good partner with Paul? Are you a person who shares his kindred's heart for ministry? Are you a person who genuinely is concerned for others? Are you a person who is selflessly devoted to the Lord, not seeking your own, but the things which are Christ's? That's what makes a person a good, faithful fellow worker. And I already said at the outside of this message, the whole church, we're all called to be faithful fellow workers in this cause of Christ. The question is, are we good ones or are we bad ones? Here's the qualities that make a good one. Finally, though, we see with Timothy he had a consistent track record. A consistent track record. Look at verse 22. But you know his proven character. That's an interesting phrase. Proven character. The word here refers to someone who has been tested and shown to be of superior quality. Something that has has been proven through experience. Timothy is not a novice here. Yeah, he's a young man, but he has a proven track record. He has shown himself faithful and trustworthy. That's why Paul can say, I'm going to send Timothy to you because he's somebody I trust. Again, I ask the question, are we people who are trustworthy? Are are we people who follow through, faithful to do what we say we're going to do? Are we people who are going to actually follow through? Or do we leave people hanging most of the time? See, these are the qualities that Paul points to Timothy and says here's a man who's a faithful fellow worker. Then he gives some instructions. Well, first he, he talks about Timothy in verse 22. He has a man of proven character that as a son with a father has served with me in the gospel. That expression there, son with a father, probably refers back to the ancient practice that sons oftentimes would go into the family business. So he would apprentice under his father. If dad was a shoemaker or cobbler or whether he was a farmer or a blacksmith or a woodcutter or stonecutter, you would practice, you would be an apprentice to your father. So the son would train alongside. The father would show him exactly how to, to do the trade. In Paul's case, it was a tent maker. Undoubtedly, his father had guided his hand and how to stitch up the, the tents and make these, these tents. So Paul understands what that's like. And he says, Timothy basically has been an understudy of me. He's followed through. He is, he's learned the ropes of ministry. He's learned what it is to serve in the gospel ministry. He's someone I trust. Then Paul gives some kind of practical instructions. He says, Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me, that is, whether he lives or dies. Remember, his life is, could go either way. I hope to send him to you as soon as I know how it goes with me, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. So Paul's confidence is that he will be released. Here's the point. Timothy is a person who is putting others first, and in that way, he resembles Christ. If we're going to be fellow workers in this cause of Christ, we need to learn what it is to put others first. If if it's all about us, if we're trying to make a name for ourselves, to make ourselves great, then we will not be a good partner in the gospel ministry. I want to introduce us to the second person, though. Timothy is just one. Paul also introduces us to Epaphroditus, who is an interesting person because this is the only place we really learn about Epaphroditus. Timothy, we have other places. Here, we have just this. And Epaphroditus is a person who models for us what it is to pour yourself out for others. He's a person who is pouring himself out for others. Now, Epaphroditus is less familiar than Timothy and harder to spell, but he is one of those many companions of the Apostle Paul. Not one of the central figures, not one of the apostles, but nonetheless he's important to the cause of Christ. And he embodies this characteristic of Christ. Jesus humbled himself. He put others first, but you know what else he did? He poured himself out. He he emptied himself, even to the point of death, which is something that Epaphroditus came very close to doing. You see, this matter of being faithful fellow workers, it's about putting others first, but also pouring yourself out in service to the Lord. Look at verse 25. I'm going to read all of 25 to 30. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger and the one who ministered to my needs, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because of you, and had heard that, and you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. So Epaphroditus is only talked about here in Philippians, but we know that he was a godly man. Now, the truth is, Epaphroditus was not a well-known apostle or Bible teacher like Peter or Paul or Apollos. In fact, were it not for this brief mention in the Philippians, maybe nobody would have ever heard of Epaphroditus before. It kind of reminds me of the many faithful shepherds and people ministering in churches all across the world, most of whom we will never know their names, we'll never hear anything about their marvelous accomplishments, but they labor day after day, and they pour themselves out, serving others, like Epaphras did, Epaphroditus, quietly serving, living out this Christ-like attitude of love and service. So what do we learn about this man who poured himself out for others? Well, first Paul tells us about his character, his character in verse 25. It says, yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. So in light of the fact that he hopes to send Timothy, he wants to send Timothy, he says, that's, that's my intention, but in the meantime, I'm going to send Epaphroditus to you. And it's necessary for him to do that. He'll explain why in a moment. Here's how he describes his character, though. First, he's a brother. He's a brother. Now, that's such a wonderful designation. Such a New Testament term, isn't it? <laughs> the church, from its earliest days, used the language of family to describe their relationships with one another. So this morning... We are here as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family, united because of what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. But here Paul is clearly not ashamed to call Epaphroditus his brother. He's, he's putting his arm around this man, basically, and saying, here's my brother Epaphroditus. I, I trust him. I'm going to send him to you. We could not even call this a, a, a godly pride, if you will, in Epaphroditus, isn't it? Paul's not afraid to brag on him a little bit. He refers to him as a brother, also as a fellow worker. He's a laborer in God's field, a worker with Paul. Uh, the Greek word here is synergos, where we get the word synergy. That's one of those kind of businessy terms, right? Like businesses will talk about synergy. Well, it really is energy together, working together. Well, he's a fellow worker. That's who he was. Now, in ancient times, this word sunergos would refer to people who worked in the same profession. So a fellow worker would be somebody who also worked in whatever trade I was in. Well, here Paul and Epaphroditus are both engaged in the ministry and the work of the gospel, as are all believers. So he's a fellow worker with Paul. And when it comes to partnership in the gospel. Not everybody's a preacher. Not everybody is a missionary. But everybody has something to do. You know, sometimes uh, people might say something along the lines of, well, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not somebody who goes out and, you know, shares the gospel with people or something. I, I just prefer to be a cheerleader on the side. Well, even being a cheerleader is, being, is work, isn't it? I mean, you don't make a human pyramid without practice. And so even the cheerleaders are there as fellow laborers. It doesn't mean they're exempt from ever sharing the gospel, but everybody has a different role in this ministry. But all can be called fellow workers, if indeed they are working for that cause. So he calls them a brother, a worker, also a soldier, a fellow soldier. Now this is a great military analogy. Paul uses these often. You might remember that Philippi was a Roman colony that was populated with retired Roman soldiers. So they understood this language of fellow soldier. Uh, when we were living in North Carolina, we were about an hour north of Fort Bragg. And you know, when you live close to a base or uh, a fort or something like that, uh, there's strong military community. That's how it would have felt in Philippi. You know, everybody you knew was a retired soldier, was active still. So for them, this term would have really stuck in their ears. Fellow soldier. In other words, we're we're fighting side by side, shoulder to shoulder. We're going to war for the sake of the gospel. And that's how all fellow workers, fellow laborers work, as soldiers of Christ, shoulder to shoulder. He's also called a messenger and a minister. A messenger, the one who ministered to my need, he says in verse 25. The messenger, Epaphroditus was probably the one who brought news of Paul, or of the Philippians to Paul. He's also the one who probably delivered this letter of the, to the Philippians. He probably was carrying this when he returned. So we hear about his ministry, his character, which Paul describes, but we also see his concern. Look at verse 26. He was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So when he left the Philippian church, Epaphroditus had been with Paul during that time, and at some point he had become dreadfully sick, probably on the trip. Remember, ancient times, you're not just hopping in a car or a train or a plane. You travel by ships. Ships were not always sanitary places. There's a lot of diseases that traveled around on ships. In fact, that's the whole uh, black plague, the bubonic plague, you know, traveled around by rats on ships. Well, somewhere along the way, he got sick. The Bible never tells us what with. The point is, he was near the point of death. He says that in verse 27. He was sick almost unto death or literally at death's door. Epaphroditus, whatever he contracted, brought him to a low point. And he was concerned. Interestingly, though, not for himself, for the Philippians. Because they were concerned for him. So he had wanted to return. We also see his condition. This is talking about his sickness, which was near death. In fact, if you go down to verse 30, it says, Because of the work of Christ, he came close to death. This illness was severe, whatever it was. Yet, thankfully, God had mercy on Epaphroditus. Notice that verse 27, for indeed, he was sick almost to death, right at death's door, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me. So God had mercy in healing Epaphroditus and mercy on Paul and not taking him, because that would add grief to grief for the apostle. This man, Epaphroditus, risked it all, and in serving God, he came near to death. One commentator writes: Paul's concern for Epaphroditus here in this passage is a tangible example of the love of one fellow believer in the fe- love for fellow believers that the fellowship of the gospel produces. Paul's heart has become so knit to Epaphroditus that the thought of losing him here is almost more than Paul can handle. Those who partner together in the gospel share a concern for one another. You know, Sometimes uh, uh, people will say, well, I don't feel like anybody in this church cares for me. I, just, I don't really feel a part of this church, or I feel isolated. Now, that may be the fault of the church. Sometimes it is. But one of the questions I always want to ask is, well, what's your role? How are you serving in this church? Oftentimes, the person is not serving. And that may be one of the reasons why they feel isolated. And, well, I don't have any friends in this church. Nobody's, I just don't feel connected. Well, have you stepped up to f- serve? Because Paul seems to picture here that the way we feel connected, how we feel connected, is by serving shoulder to shoulder with one another in this ministry of the gospel. Finally, though, Let's consider Epaphroditus' commitment, his commitment. In verse 29, it says this Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. So he instructs the church to do two things receive him in the Lord and honor such men. Now, receive has the idea of to welcome, to greet warmly, to receive them. Men like Epaphroditus should be honored, he says. Lifted up. Now, we shouldn't put them on a pedestal, but they should be rightfully acknowledged. I recently read a story about a a Norwegian woman who became a missionary to China. She was a missionary there for over 30 years, between 1900 and 1930. And she had a significant impact on the province of, of China where she ministered. Well, dozens of years later, a Chinese believer was visiting Norway, and while he was there, he said, I'd like to visit the grave of this missionary lady who did so much for my country and who ministered in my province. I have family members who are believers because of her. So they went to the graveyard where she was buried. They looked around. And they couldn't find her grave anywhere. So they went to the office and talked to the administrator. They looked through the files and said, oh, no, she is buried here. But there's never been a grave marker placed, just a grave plot, number 62 or something like that. Well, this Chinese believer was indignant. You know, how could someone who had served so faithfully in the gospel be completely unrecognized? And he told the, the Norwegian believers who were with him, he said, listen, I want you to, to get to work build a headstone, a monument or whatever to this woman for her service. He said, I'll give you two years to do it. If you don't get it done in two years, I'm going to instruct some believers from China to walk from China to Norway to build a monument to this woman <laughs> for her years of service. Well, the Norwegian believers did put up a monument. But that's, that's the type of honor. that people who labor like Epaphroditus, like this person, should be honored. Now that may be in different ways. But here Epaphroditus put his life on the line. He poured himself out for others. Look at verse 29. Uh, Excuse me, verse 30. Because of his work in Christ, he came close to death. He nearly died in serving the Lord. Now, this wasn't martyrdom, but it was sickness in the service of Christ. He risked himself, In going out to share the gospel, he risked himself for the work of Christ, it says in verse thirty. What's the work of Christ? Well, if we do a little review through Philippians, it's this it's the fellowship of the gospel, chapter one, verse five. It's the advance of the gospel, one twelve. It's the preaching of Christ, chapter one, verse fifteen. It's proclaiming Christ, chapter 117. It's striving together for the gospel, 127. It's holding forth the word of life, 216. It's serving with me in the gospel, 222. That's the work that he was doing. That was the work that he put his life on the line for. He came close to death. Where else have we read something similar in Philippians 2? Well, back in 2, verse 8. It says that Jesus poured himself out and he didn't just come close to death. He died on a cross for us. Epaphroditus, in a small way, resembled Christ. He was willing to put his life on the line for the work of making Jesus known. He put himself in danger. I stumbled across an illustration that captures something of a modern-day epaphroditus, a man named John Beekman. He had a serious heart condition, which was practically a death sentence. He had only one chance to live, and it was pretty slim. A very risky surgery involving uh, open-heart surgery. At the time this happened, this was many years ago, only two other people had ever survived this procedure. If he was careful and he followed the doctor's instructions, he might become survivor number three. Well, John Beekman went ahead with the surgery, but it gave him a new perspective on life. He was the third survivor. But instead of seeing his life now as something to be guarded and protected, he said, I want to use whatever is left of my life to serve the Lord. So ignoring the doctor's orders, John Beekman and his wife became missionaries to the Chol Indians in southern Mexico. He went as a Bible translator to reach that people group. They were down in the steamy jungles of southern Mexico, learning the language, living in primitive conditions, eventually translating the New Testament into that language and making it available for those people. And the title of the the book that records their story it's a title I think that Epaphroditus would have liked. It was this, Peril by Choice. Peril by Choice. See, that's what Epaphroditus did. He put his life on the line, risked himself, poured himself out for others. Here's the question. And the question for us is not necessarily, are you willing to die for the gospel? Some may be called to do that. Here's the real question. Are you willing to be poured out for others? That might be more than just putting your life on the line. Are you willing to be exhausted in serving the Lord? Are you willing to be inconvenienced in serving the Lord? Are you willing to invest your time in serving the Lord? Are you willing to invest your money in serving the Lord? Are you willing to invest yourself? Sink your own resources into doing what God wants you to do. Pouring yourself out, there's a whole lot more we could say about that. But it's more than just putting your life on the line. It's putting all that you have on the line. Let me close with these words. Each and every follower of Christ is called upon to be a partner in this mission of the gospel. So let me ask a few questions. How do you view yourself at this church would you say oh i'm a frequent attender or maybe you'd even say i'm a regular attender Uh, maybe you would say this is a place i really enjoy it here maybe uh maybe you would find some other way to describe your involvement and your being a part of this church but let me let me just encourage you to rethink that for a second Maybe we should be thinking of this church and and our part in it as we are fellow soldiers, fellow laborers. We come here to be equipped, to learn, to be encouraged, but also to go out and partner together in the work of the gospel. It's not just to come to have a good place to spend a few hours on a Sunday morning. Not even a place where we can just have some good times and be with our friends. But instead, we are being prepared for this work of the gospel. Every one of us is a part of it. Every one of us is called to be in this partnership, the fellowship of the gospel as it's called. And maybe you look at your life and say, I need to do more. I want to do more. Well, trust me, the statement is true. The, the, labor is, the work is great, the laborers are few. There's always work to be done. Are you willing to be a Timothy? Or an Epaphroditus, faithful fellow workers in the cause of the gospel.